Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, Episode 8, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. On this week's episode, I have a conversation with Professor Olga Holtz from the University of California, Berkeley. We speak about zonotopal algebra, the difference between working in the United States and Germany, and the new bottleneck of communication. Here we go. This is Strongly Connected Components. I'm here uh, with Professor Olga Holtz from University of California, Berkeley. It's a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. <laughs> Good to meet you. And uh, well, we're here at the Joint uh, Mathematics Meeting in San Francisco, and uh, you were one of the invited speakers. You were speaking on uh, Zenitopal Algebra uh, Analysis and Combinatorics, correct? That's right. Uh, could you give a little bit of a background as to what that is and what you were here to talk about? Well, it's really hard to explain it in five minutes. That's why I had to spend 50 minutes and I still didn't have a chance to explain everything that I would ideally want to explain. Well, just, just a small little bit. Sure. So my initial interest in that area comes from analysis, um, more specifically from approximation theory, which usually deals with objects like function classes from which to approximate other functions. And you may know things like splines, especially univariate splines, yes. this is a subject of approximation theory, which, by the way, had great success and is very, very useful in many industrial applications. So what we started from was um, the theory of box splines, which is the generalization to the multivariate setting of the theory of univariate splines, and more specifically, B-splines. And a number of questions arise naturally in that setting as to the power of such function spaces, okay. such multivariate functions. Yes. But then, if you're faced with that, naturally, due to the intrinsic algebraic nature of the, of the construction of box splines, you come across very interesting phenomena in algebra. And then later we discovered also in combinatorics. Actually, we discovered a whole bunch of interrelated things that it started from this rather simple object, uh, the box spline, and leads to various things. And so we are still exploring all these connections. There are connections with enumerative combinatorics, with commutative algebra, with um, elliptic operators, even, you know, all, all sorts of things. And some of it is very new, very exciting. So we don't yet fully understand all possible connections, but I was talking about some of the things that allow us to connect the algebras that arise in this setting with, uh, in particular, with the numerative combinatorics, combinatorics and graphs, these kinds of things. Okay, and uh, what what originally uh, spawned the research that allowed you to realize that you were in this really big area that you had, you had found? Well, some observations have been made a while ago, so this is not my work. This oh, okay. is work from the 90s, um, um, and uh, I joined only around 2000. Oh, okay. It's a long project already uh, for me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it, uh, I, I got into this project around 2000, 
And in, initially, there were many, many open questions, and still there are many open questions, in fact. But initially, we were just trying to sort of fill our way around, and we noticed many coincidences. So just counting things, you know, counting dimensions of various spaces, we came across amazing coincidences, and we said, well, it cannot be just accidental, right? Yes. So you have to unravel what's going on, and we discovered one connection after the other, sort of, we had to learn many things because, say, you know, I I was not trained in combinatorics per se as a graduate student as much as I was trained in classical analysis and linear algebra. And then I had to learn all those things, but it was really fascinating. I had to learn a lot of new things. Uh, do you find that uh, the projects that you tend to work on uh, tend to stay towards what you uh, were studying in graduate school, or do you prefer to branch out a bit more? Actually, not... Not at all. They don't stay where we start. <laughs> it's always something new. And actually, to me, this is the exciting part. You know, I yeah. hate to work in a very focused area. I mean, some people like that. I, nothing is wrong with that. But I would find myself bored. I mean, I get bored very easily. Okay. <laughs> so I would find myself bored if the subject I were studying were always the same. You know, you keep doing essentially the same things and you use the same methods and then something develops. I mean, this is fine, but eventually you want to do something else, right? You want to, you want to do something new. And so, you know, I had to learn many things and I still don't know so many things and they are on my to-do list, you know, so one day I have an embarrassing number of books I want to read that I, you know, didn't get around to. So that's, that's how it is. You are listening to Strongly Connected Components. Today's episode is Professor Olga Holtz from the University of California, Berkeley. If you would like to learn more about the show, head over to acmescience.com. And if you'd like to give any feedback, you can email me at my personal email account, samuel at acmescience.com. Now, Strongly Connected Components is not the only show that is brought to you by acmescience.com. We also have combinations and permutations, which is a much lighter take on mathematics. We'll start with some sort of mathematical topic, and then it gets quickly spun out of control into massive tangents that tend to include food or really bad pop culture references. So if you like to hear a little bit of a comedic take on mathematics, please head over to acmescience.com and also check out combinations and permutations. Back to the interview. Uh, one thing that I, that I really like to ask uh, the people that I, that I interview on this show is, uh, is what led them down the path to mathematics? What originally got you interested in, in pursuing math as, as a career, as a life even? Yeah, well, it's it's hard to tell in, in my case because I always liked mathematics. You know, for as long as I remember myself, I liked mathematics as a, as a kid. You know, my parents had those popular math books. Okay, so to begin with, my parents have strong interest in mathematics. Oh. They're both professionals. They're not in mathematics, not professional mathematicians. They were mostly working as computer scientists, practical computer scientists doing software development and stuff like that. Um, so there was this very strong mathematical environment yeah. to begin with. Yeah. And then um, I found myself just liking this stuff and they had puzzle books. They had all sorts of popular math books. So it just naturally developed and I was doing this Olympiad 
math problems when I was a kid, you see. Maybe, you know, maybe not when I was three years old, but <laughs> pretty soon, yeah. pretty quickly. So this was natural. And the only hard part was to decide because I liked other things too. Yes. So in school, I liked quite a few things. And that was the agony action to decide, do I want to do math specifically as something that eventually I will be doing as a profession, right? Or is it just fun and I don't want to pursue it as a profession? So this was the agony. And in my case, you know, it took a while, but eventually what really got me hooked at that stage when I was already 17 or so was reading um, George Poyer's book, Mathematics and Plausible Reasoning and going through this whole book, working out all the, all the details. And he said, wow, this is just so great. I mean, I really want to do it professionally. Oh, I, Mathematics is, isn't, as you were saying, it's not your only interest in it. My, the, the amount of research I was able to do uh, for this is correct. You actually do do something other than math, correct? That's correct. Yeah. It's uh, music? So I still do music. Um, I started off um, as, as pianist. I was trained as a pianist for seven, eight years. Then I stopped doing that. Um, well, I can still do that, but you know, I don't pursue it the way I initially pursued yes. that. And now I doing, uh, I'm doing singing. Um, I sing with one of the, the well-known choirs in Germany, in Berlin, Philharmonische Chor Berlin. It's pretty well-known. It's, it's very good. Um, so this is what I do now as a hobby. Uh, now, as you're saying, you're singing with uh, this uh, choir in Berlin. Uh, now that's uh, one reason you're able to do that is because you hold a joint position currently, correct? That's right. And so you're working both in Berkeley and then in Berlin as well. That's right. So over the last couple of years, I've been spending half a year in Berkeley and half a year in Berlin. That's right. Now, uh, what, uh, as, as someone who uh, is working in, in two different countries, and uh, I imagine, it, well, they're definitely two different cultures as well, uh, what sort of difference do you see in the mathematical culture uh, between, say, Berlin and Berkeley? Well, Surprisingly, there are many, many similarities. I, I should perhaps start with similarities. So mathematicians are mathematicians everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's you know mathematics is essentially the same everywhere, and chalk is the same everywhere, and blackboards are essentially the same. So it's not so many differences, and also both are big state schools, and both unfortunately are having problems with budgets. <laughs> so that's you know similarities for you. Uh, there are some differences. I think in Germany overall there is um, some. I, I, I should be careful how you, I say it. I think general public in Germany has um, a higher view of uh, people who do research of I, any kind, science. Well, given the general lack of view that people in the United States have of people who do science, I can easily understand that. <laughs> I see, yeah. So that's that's what exists there. You know, people who are not necessarily in mathematics and physics and any kind of creative research environment are highly regarded because, well, definitely they have to go through extensive training. Yes. It's, not, it's not a trivial thing to become a professor of physics. Say, oh, right? yeah. So they are highly regarded by the general public and even on the everyday level you know, you can 
want to make a reservation at, at a restaurant if they know it's a professor so-and-so calling, <laughs> then not definitely, you know, you may get a better treatment. <laughs> you may get... That is a big difference, definitely. In the U.S., nobody would care. <laughs> no, no one would know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, a lot of the research, I mean, other than the things we were talking about that you were uh, giving your talk on here uh, about, uh, you do a lot of work with numerical analysis and uh, a lot of work with uh, finding uh, good solutions quickly, correct? That's right. That's right. So that's another line of research. I was not talking about that yeah. here. It's um, numerical algorithms that are stable and fast at the same time. Stable means numerical stability. It can be uh, quantified exactly. Um, that basically means using all machine resources, sometimes a parallel cluster uh, resources of, of that, to compute a solution fast and within the proper accuracy limits, so that your answer, there is always some error performed during a computation. Yes. This is unavoidable. You cannot yeah. really avoid that. It is due to many things. It, it's due to how floating point arithmetic is performed, ultimately. It could be also due to imprecisions in the data that you are, yeah. that you received. So this is unavoidable, but we want to minimize that. And again, given data, given certain values, um, we know from the data, we want to come up with guarantees that say if the data is given to within that much precision, that's what we can guarantee in terms of the output. So, but also we want to do it computationally efficiently, meaning in terms of the speed. Yeah. So we want to do it, you know, we don't want to spend our lifetimes computing uh, uh, an answer to a problem which can be done in a few seconds, right? Yes, of course. Now, with uh, the way that technology has been going, obviously it's been getting significantly faster and capacity has been getting a lot larger. Have you uh, found that you're able uh, to now not worry as much about the efficiency, worry a little bit more about the accuracy since the computers themselves are faster, or have they not quite gotten to the point where they're fast enough that you can uh, start just worrying about accuracy? Well, the arithmetic capabilities of computers are improving substantially yeah. very quickly. This is Moore's Law or some version of Moore's yeah. Law. So definitely you're right in this regard. What is, however, not improving is the speed of communication. Meaning, oh, okay. whenever you have a multiprocessor um, setup, whenever you have a parallel cluster, the the individual agents, processors, and so forth have to communicate to each other. This is not improving fast. In fact, um, it's the speed at which these parameters improve is much much lower than the oh, speed okay. of increase in the performance of the actual arithmetic components. And so this is the new bottleneck in a way. And we, we have a, a very new line of research just over the last couple of years where we are addressing exactly that, you know, communication complexity versus arithmetic complexity. So this is the new bottleneck. Well, not so new perhaps, but, you know, we are really interested in that currently. And we have a whole bunch of things we are trying to achieve in this direction as well. Okay. Well, that's uh, very interesting. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. That is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. I wanted to thank the wonderful people at the Joint Mathematics Meeting for not batting an eye as I walked around with voice recorders, and for the use of their press room where this episode was recorded. 
Now, if you want to reach me, uh, leave any feedback or uh, complaints or anything of that ilk, you can email me at samuel at acmescience.com. You can find out more about this show and everything else about Acme Science at acmescience.com. And also, you can go leave some comments on the forum. Be nice. We don't have too many people up there right now, and I'd love to get an active community of people talking about these shows as well as more generally about mathematics. The music on this episode is the same as it has ever been, which means that we have the theme song, which is Pi, or specifically the Pi song, from Hard and Firm, and the interstitial and outro music is from SP12. You can find out more about them at opsounds.org. This podcast is a Creative Commons licensed podcast under an attribution share-alike license. So, remix it, remaster it, re-anything it. Just make sure you give credit. Thanks a lot for listening, and I will get back to you in about a week with another episode of Strongly Connected Components. <laughs>